morning, church. So today's Bible reading is Micah chapter 6, and we have it up in the screen. Micah chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Barak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgad, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ephod which is accursed? Shall I quit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich people are violent, her people are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing, because what you save, I'll give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil on yourselves. You crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Urim and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Raymond. Indeed it is. Uh, We'll be looking at today's passage, so please uh, keep your Bibles open. Let's pray. Lord, as we heard your word read this morning by Raymond, we're aware that this is a word both of rebuke and of counsel and also a call to repentance. Lord, help us to sit before your throne this morning 
with hearts open to what you have to say to us. Lord, have mercy. Enable me, Lord, to speak freely this morning about the matters that your word raises for us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the Lord require? There's an Australian play called A Hard God. It tells the story of the Cassidys, an Irish-Australian family living in Sydney in 1946, struggling to reconcile their faith with the harsh realities of life. Dan Cassidy and his family suffered during the Great Depression of the 1930s. But they survived and Dan became the rock on which the rest of his family depended. His elder brother Martin was a poet, working as a labourer on the Warragamba Dam. His younger brother Paddy lived in terror of his alcoholic, razor-wielding wife Sophie, who was a compulsive gambler as well. While at home, Dan's teenage son, Joe, was secretly attracted to Jack, his school friend. As the story unfolds, several incidents threaten a crisis of faith for all the main characters. First, Martin is drowned under suspicious circumstances at the Warragamba Dam. He had been pointing out the evils of Marxism and what was going on in Russia. Then Sophie brings home another man into her marital bed, forcing Paddy out onto the streets, raising questions about divorce. Then Dan's failing eyesight causes him increasing pain, which is eventually diagnosed as cancer, that disease which can really challenge your faith. And then, of course, Joe. Well, Joe is rejected by Jack, who declares that their love is a mortal sin in God's sight. Homosexuality is also a challenge to Christian faith. I had to study this play as a teenager. I can still remember how uncomfortable it made me feel. I had to go back and read a little bit about it in preparing this morning. It's a very powerful story because the author, Peter Kenner, draws heavily on his own childhood experiences. These are basically real characters with real problems. But the story ends not in hope, but in hardness. Because the moral of this play is that God is a hard God. God is a hard God. So the characters blame God. Of course, this is not a new problem, is it? The circumstances of life can be hard. And perhaps one reason why many Australians are so hard to evangelise is due to this kind of wrong thinking about God, which is also evident in our passage today. People expect God to give them what they want. They resent God for reminding them of the truth, and they blame God when things go wrong. But is our suffering in this world really God's fault? Is God really a hard God, as these people say he is? What does the Lord require of us? Micah chapter 6 is like a courtroom drama. The Lord is the complainant, and he has a legal case to bring against his people. So this is my first point for today. The courtroom drama begins. We read in verse 1, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. 
Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. God is calling upon creation itself to be the jury in this case because creation can stand as an impartial observer to our behaviour across the ages. Our lives are just too short and we lose perspective on the big picture. But the mountains and the hills and the everlasting foundations of the earth, well, they can stand witness against all of us when God calls us to account. Sin has set a controversy between us, a debt to pay, a trespass to atone for, a defilement to cleanse. And if God seems hard, well, it's only because we've underestimated the seriousness of sin. Do you remember the parable of the talents that Jesus once told? One of the servants in that parable accuses his master of being a hard man. Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed, so I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Is God a hard God? No, but he is the high king of heaven. And he is rightly to be feared. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything that exists, exists because he called it into existence. If you are a lazy, wicked servant, you can expect to be rebuked by this high king of heaven. But when you read Exodus and the story of Moses talking to God on the mountain, you discover that God is first of all compassionate and gracious, as his name declares. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should turn to him and live. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I guess for some people, this can make God seem hard. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Whatever has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Whatever has cost God cannot be cheap for us. He goes on to say, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace, listen to this, is preaching forgiveness without repentance. How can you be forgiven if you haven't repented? Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. We need to remember that. But what he does is he takes our penalty upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's costly grace. That's costly grace. And so we need to listen to what God is saying to his people in our passage today because this also applies to us, that temptation to want forgiveness without changing how we live, to be baptised without being disciplined, to be 
able to have communion without confession. It is a temptation. So let the case begin. Take your stand and prepare your defence. Verse 2. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Today we will hear the Lord's complaint against his people in verses 3 to 5, followed by the heart of the matter in verses 6 to 8, and then we'll finish by hearing the judge's verdict in verses 9 to 16. But hear now the complaint of the Lord against his people, starting in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Is this the language of a hard God? It's got a hard taskmaster, a cruel overlord. No, this is the language of love. It's genuine, it's heartfelt. I mean, God could have trotted out a long list of offences and said to his people, pay up. He kept a record of wrongs for the purpose of merely condemning us. I'm sure that's how this speech would have gone, but that's not who God is. He's not a cruel or hard God, but he is the high king of heaven. And he is also a loving and good God. This is a heartfelt appeal. It's as if he's saying to his people, as he says in Isaiah, a prophet who lived the same time as Micah, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God wants to reason with his people. So in verse 4, he begins to share an account, some of which Derek shared in our kids' talk this morning. What did God do for his people? I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. This is one of those moments where God gets out the old photo album. Have you ever done that? You've been to your grandparents' place and they say, well, let's talk about the stories of the, of the family and we go back and we look at all those black and white photos and, and, and where our family line comes from. And God's kind of doing that here for his people Israel. He's got out the old photo album and he's reminding his people of all the good things that he's done for them. I brought you up out of Egypt, don't you remember? I redeemed you from the land of slavery. And I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead you on your way and to teach you my word and my ways. And then after that, you crossed the Jordan River from Shittim to Gilgal and I protected you from the enemy's curse. Don't you remember? Balak hired Balaam, son of Beor, to bring a curse upon you. But the more Balaam tried to curse you, the more I gave him words of blessing. Until at last, Balak, the king of Moab, gave up in disgust. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Just for the record, God's people really did nearly destroy themselves at that time. But it wasn't God's fault. 
God will never curse his own people unless we break faith with him under the terms of the covenant. The covenant contains covenant curses which we can bring down upon ourselves. But it's never arbitrary. So Balaam, in the end, devised a very clever trap with which to tempt the Israelites into sin, to break the covenant, to bring down the covenant curses upon themselves. He went to Balak one last time. He said, O king, get the women of Moab to entice the men of Israel into worshipping the Baal of Peor. Try sex. Try pornography. Tempt them with that idolatry to bring God's judgment down upon their own heads. And it worked. God's judgment broke out against his people until Phineas intervened. But if you look at our passage today, you won't find any of those details there, will you? God doesn't actually drag up the past. I'm just sharing with you the details that they would have known also took place. God doesn't go back and rake up those details. He could have, he could have mentioned the Baal of Peor by name in verse 5 if he wanted to. He could have told his people they're a bunch of no-hopers who ran after other gods and never really loved him anyway. But God doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he calls on his people as a loving father, perhaps as a jilted husband or a gracious and wise king, and he says, Oh, my people, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember your calling. Remember your first love. Remember the righteous acts of the Lord. So he says in verse 5, Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Shittim is actually just about a stone's throw away from Gilgal. They're very close to each other. You can see one place from the other. But theologically, they're in different worlds. Why are they in different worlds? Well, because Shittim is on this side of the Jordan River in the land of Moab, but Gilgal is on that side, on the other side of the Jordan, in the promised land. Theologically, they are worlds apart from one another. And here's the point that God is making. He's saying to his people, despite your many failures, you did end up entering the promised land. Joshua took you over the Jordan River on dry land. Remember the journey from Shittim to Gilgal. How God graciously enabled you to enter the land. That's a miracle of the first order. It's grace. And it proves that God is not a hard God. He rescued them from Egypt. He redeemed them from bondage. He gave them good and godly leaders. He kept his promises despite all their sins. And in Joshua chapter 5, you will find God's people, having crossed the Jordan River, are happily breaking bread together and rejoicing and singing at Gilgal. Having renewed their covenant with the Lord, they celebrated the Passover in the promised land for the very first time. And how could God's people ever forget Such a wonderful moment. So today's passage is really all about God's faithfulness, bracketing that, our unfaithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. He is the Lord who rightly judges sin and yet mysteriously justifies sinners without compromising on his holiness. Yes, life 
is sometimes hard. Perhaps for you this morning, there are sexual temptations. There are same-sex attractions. Perhaps you are struggling with cancer. Or you do have marital problems. But that doesn't mean that God is a hard God. God wants you to remember today your own spiritual journey from Shittim to Gilgal. That the inheritance is now yours in Jesus Christ, because we too have that journey into faith, into relationship with God, into the hope of that new creation that God has prepared for us. So don't blame God when life is hard, but rather look to Jesus and remind yourself that he is faithful and he is good. We come now to the heart of the matter in verses 6 to 8. It's my third point for today in which Micah brilliantly exposes the error in the mindset of the worshippers whose heart is not right with the Lord. Let me say that again. Micah brilliantly exposes the error in the mindset of the worshippers whose heart is not right with the Lord. I want you to listen to the following questions and see if you could pick the moment where things start to go wrong. You might even like to raise your hand if you think you've reached the point where that line is crossed. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. If you're brave, you can raise your hand where you think the line is crossed. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, I didn't see any hands go up, maybe one half. <laughs> Where was the line crossed? Well, obviously, I hope you agree, there's a problem with child sacrifice, isn't there? We're going to take Ben, put him on the altar this morning? Oh, yes, there's a nod there. Okay, go. It'll solve our family problems for the week. The Canaanites offered their own children to their gods, Chemosh, Milcom, and Baal. They took their children as sin offerings and slew them in exchange for their own lives. But this was an abomination to the Lord. It was so detestable that God ordered all those who did such things to be put to death. Clearly, child sacrifice is out, so we must have crossed the line by there. But can you see that there's an escalation going on here? From calves a year old to thousands of rams to 10,000 rivers of oil and then finally to child sacrifice. But where does the problem begin? Where does the intention of the worshippers go wrong? Well, you'll find the answer back at the start of verse 6. Did you have your hand up from the very first words? Maybe not. The error is in the question itself. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? With what? Sounds good. But it's the wrong question to ask because it leads to transactional thinking. 
Should I bring more costly gifts to atone for more serious sins? Should I bankrupt myself to pay for transgressions that I've committed? Even now, a thousand rams? I wonder if any of you did the calculation. How much does a ram cost? Well, a good ram today costs $250. Okay, so a thousand rams is 250 times a thousand. That's a quarter of a million dollars today. How many people living 2,000 or 3,000 years ago do you think could cough up that kind of price? Maybe a king. Pretty much no one else. What does God really want? Does he want your possessions and your money? Or does he want you? That's why Micah chapter 6 verse 8 is such a precious verse. For this is where we come to the heart of worship. As it says, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's a different answer, isn't it? Completely different answer. God doesn't require thousands of rams or lambs or rivers of oil. What God requires is you, the real you, the you who lives behind that mask that you put up every day, the you who knows your inmost thoughts. What God wants is you, your life, your love, your very self. But that's the very thing that the worshippers in Micah's day were holding back. And often it's what we hold back to, ourselves. Ourselves. In fact, they began to treat their sacrifices like payments rather than as opportunities to give thanks and praise to the Lord. And the result is this disastrous bidding war that escalates to the point of absurdity, profanity. Instead of opening their hearts to the Lord and letting God's word transform their minds, they become engaged in this shallow transactionalism. And it has to stop. So Micah breaks in in verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly by doing what is morally right. To love mercy even as God has been merciful to you and to walk humbly with your God, being mindful of your own fallenness. To live your life in this way is to set yourself in radical opposition with the world around us because the world is living that transactional life, thinking that they can either ignore God entirely or bring something to atone for their sins. So much that passes for justice in our world today is actually just cynical virtue signalling. Like the proposed referendum to change the constitution, it'll do nothing for those terrified residents of Alice Springs and other outback communities. Christians should have nothing to do with such Cheap grace, transactionalism. We need to get alongside those who are suffering and through prayer and hard work and gospel ministry bring hope to the hopeless and healing to the hurting. 
So we come to my final point for today in which we hear the judge's verdict, starting in verse 9. Listen. The Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. In other words, listen to God. Am I to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? What have they been doing? Cheating. Lying, deceiving. I see there's new software these days. You can ask, uh, ask the software to write you an essay on whatever topic you want. Press the button, bing, there you go, the essay. It's so good. Uh, one of the, the lecturers from uh, one of the universities gave one of these to a colleague to market and he couldn't tell that it was done by a computer. Gave it a pass mark, 80%, written by a computer. Very tempting for students. Universities are deciding they're going to have to go back to written exams. <laughs> no more assignments to hand in. It'll all have to be done by hand in the classroom. Christians shouldn't have been tempted to do that, but I bet some are. The ethics of these people who live in the city of Jerusalem are an embarrassment to God and a disgrace to the church. Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, their tongues speak deceitfully, they don't care about old-fashioned things like decency, honesty or integrity. They're only interested in looking after themselves and if that means lying and cheating and stealing and bribing and swindling and blackmailing, well, that's life in the city, get over it. No. No, says the Lord, that won't do. In verse 13, therefore, says the Lord, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. I think this judgment lies over Australia at the moment. What we need is not changed laws, but a revival in the church. An end to the shallow transactionalism that we see here. No doubt there are those who will blame God, that God isn't fair, that suffering is really God's fault. But isn't it rather the case that these people have brought it all upon themselves by their own sinful behaviour? That's what God's word says here. Because of your sins. The Bible teaches us that God's justice is always right and when we suffer under his discipline, we should learn to humble ourselves and repent, not defy him all the more. Now what follows in verse 14 and the next few verses is actually a poetic summary of the covenant curses that are found in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. This is where all the consequences of infidelity and ingratitude toward God are spelled out in quite painful detail. In short, you will eat 
but not be satisfied. You will store up, but save nothing. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. Your life will be robbed of all enjoyment. And you will be very unhappy. What you want, you cannot have. What you have will not satisfy. It's miserable. I read an article about uh, the the drug, uh, ice. It's causing all kinds of terrible problems, particularly in the homosexual community in England, where it's used very widely. The article shares that the, the drug actually multiplies many times the libido, the desire to have sex. It's almost uncontrolled desire to have sex. And yet you cannot reach resolution. So they go around eternally unsatisfied, but driven. What you want, you cannot have. What you have will not satisfy. When we live in a world like this, we need to be wise because what God is giving us is an opportunity to turn back to him, to confess our sins and to live. It's not too late. So don't get caught in a trap of denialism. People of Micah's day were content to keep on sinning and paying off their sins through religious acts as though God can be bribed. Not much different to people today who come to church just to feel better about themselves but never really grow up into spiritual maturity. Today's passage should teach us that this is not authentic Christianity because what God really wants is you. But if not, then be warned for his judgment awaits and rightly so in verse 16. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house You've followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will be the scorn of the nations. It's not easy to face the possibility of ruin, financial ruin, marital ruin, reputational ruin. I don't know how I would go if I had to face public ruin. I'm sure it would put my faith to the test. And scorn, derision, mockery, well, these are not easy to take either. But if we face such trials, it doesn't mean that we should fall into this trap of denialism. Because what God wants of you is to grow up into spiritual maturity. So don't follow the logic of that play, A Hard God. In that play, all the characters follow a transactional approach to God so that whenever life doesn't go their way, they conclude that God has let them down. Ultimately, God is a hard God and we shouldn't worship him, or so they say. That's probably why they wanted us to study that play back in school in the first place. Uh, So often these days, school curriculums are based on values that are overtly anti-Christian. The message of Micah teaches us that to blame God is not the answer. 
It's an emotional reaction. It may be understandable in the initial period of shock when bad things happen. But after that, you do need to settle down and gather your thoughts. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. As I ask this question of myself, I find that I'm aware of my own nakedness before God. There really is nothing in myself that I can use to cover my shame. I'm a sinner in the presence of a holy God. There's nothing I can do to save myself. All I can do is to throw myself upon his mercy and trust my life into his hands. And in conclusion, that's what I urge you to do today as well. If you've been feeling that God has let you down, if you've wandered away and are wondering what God is doing, I call upon you to first of all remember the good things that God has done for you. Get out that photo album and remember what God has done. What can you be thankful for that God has done for you? And secondly, to be honest. Stop running or denying, but to repent of your sins, to confess and to say, yes, I've stuffed up. I've run far from the Lord. And recover your first love for the Lord. Come back to him. For he is ready and willing to receive you. He's not a hard God. He's a loving father. For he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, in the trials of life, we confess that sometimes we do get angry and we blame you. And we try to pass the buck and avoid the conclusion that we inevitably must reach. The problem is ultimately our own. Lord, soften our hearts by your spirit this morning and help us to recover our first love for you. Revive us again. Pour out your spirit of love and truth into our lives that as a church we might be strong in Christ and have confidence in the gospel that you have given us in Jesus Christ, your son. Help us to act justly, help us to love mercy, and help us always to walk humbly with you, our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name, amen.